I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Byron Manning, the curator of Cleland Wildlife Park. Hey, Byron. Hello. Mate, we're sitting in the middle of Cleland. I mean, what an amazing part of the world. We're in the Mount Lofty Ranges, surrounded by native bush. We are. It's a, it's a fantastic place. It reminds me very much of my time spent at Hillsville Sanctuary in Victoria, um, in this bush setting. So, I mean, it's a great place to work. You're very lucky. It's a biological hotspot, as we know. And not only do you have the captive animals here that people can come and see and learn about the environment, but they can just go for a walk either side of us. We're surrounded by pristine bush. So what an amazing place. It is. It's not so much like your normal zoo or wildlife park. It's more open range, but open range for native animals. So visitors can come up here and they can just go for a walk and all of a sudden they've got kangaroos around them. It's not as if you feel as though you're actually in an enclosure. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a really special um, type of place. And then you have things like free-range potteroos and the odd bandicoot that just come up and hand-feed them. So it's fantastic. People love that. And having the animal right next to you and not in a cage, I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's a massive impact. It's that real engagement that people get from it. And you get a lot of the wild species come through too because the whole place is landscaped with locally indigenous plants. They've got the plants that have grown here for millennia, attracting all these different animals coming in. So, great experience. Oh, it is. And having been here for a few years now, you certainly see the birds that migrate in and out so for example at the moment we've got quite a few white-throated tree creepers coming around so every time you come up here you've got the opportunity to see something different i love them the last podcast we did one flew past yeah. again. Joe, I'm just i'm, I'm just going to put this out there the man cave at my place um it's just an old quarry we've got on the property and we've revegetated it and we call it the man cave because it's like a bit of a cave cut into the the cliff apologies ladies oh yeah <laughs> that's right <laughs> but it is what it is yeah <laughs> the gender non-specific cave <laughs> uh, currently there is a white-throated tree creeper sleeping up under the um the overhang from the man cave oh wow i thought it, when i first saw it, i thought it was a bat yeah upside down sleeping <laughs> fascinating but um you worked at hillsville sanctuary mate that's where i started my zookeeping career Yep, um, I can remember it, December 1986. I spent 18 and a half years there. It was a fantastic time. Uh, I was nine years old then, Byron, just so you know. Thank you, mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> there are days where I feel a lot older than you. <laughs> yeah, so no, it's, and again, as I said, it was, it's, it's, it was native wildlife and you had this, you know, this bush setting, so... It, in a lot of ways, I see Cleland as being, you know, the equivalent of what Hillsville Sanctuary is and that type of way it displays its native wildlife. Well, that's one of my favourite things about a zoo is it engages people with the environment. Even if it's just cages and animals, it still opens up a curiosity in kids particularly. But, I mean, like you say, surrounded by that kind of environment, Hillsville Sanctuary would definitely do that times 10. So did you work with any interesting species while you were there? Oh definitely Um, when I first started there I worked as a bird keeper so I was doing bird aviaries then went on to I was the koala keeper uh, for about five years so I got to work with koalas and that was very interesting my passions and fortes have always been reptiles, although I love working with other species as well. I then went to the reptile department and actually worked in the reptile house and that at that time it was connected to the uh, free flight bird show, so the raptor show, so I got to do a bit of falconry, 
not with the big birds, not the eagles or anything like that, but more the owls. That said, you're talking about an interesting uh, species. Got to work with a powerful owl on the glove. Nice. Stunning species, absolutely stunning species. And from there, I went to endangered species, so captive breeding and release programs. So things such as black-eared miners, helmeted honeyeaters, a little bit with orange-bellied parrots, but it was mainly black-eared miners and uh, helmeted honeyeaters. And, um, yeah, that was pretty much 18 and a half years, although I I did work for about six months at London Zoo during that time. I had long service, and my partner at the time was doing a keeper exchange at London Zoo. So I went over there. They offered me a job, but my work visa fell through, so I just volunteered for six months in their reptile house. It was an amazing time, incredible species. London Zoo at that time was known for having quite a quite a, an extensive venomous collection. So yeah, they, they had an amazing collection. Oh, yeah. you know, spitting cobras, all sorts of stuff. Uh, mm. Green, black mambas, boomslangs, uh, gaboon vipers, lots and lots of adders. So, yeah, it's stuff that I probably wouldn't get the opportunity to work in you know in the industry here because they're just simply not in the country anymore that yeah that's that's reaching the heights as sort of as high as you can go really get to places like london do yeah i mean i know it's changed now but at that time it was you know yeah they they had almost everything Mm. it was great awesome so is your um your your zoo career taking you all over the world uh it has obviously when i when i left uh, i decided an opportunity came up at Adelaide Zoo to work as the senior reptile keeper so I took that opportunity left Hillsville came to Adelaide I was there for about five six years and then the opportunity to be the curator here at Cleland presented itself so I took that and while I've been here at Cleland we have exported animals overseas so I've been to Hong Kong a number of times and in recent times to the UK. Yeah, you did some stuff with Longleat? Longleat, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's we, an amazing place. I it is, it. yes. We, we, um, we exported some koalas and, and wombats to Longleat. Can you export a uh, wombat to my house? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and that's all we've got time for. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, come back. So you obviously love it, mate. I mean, you, you said earlier you had some time off, so you go and work in a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And at home. You, you finish work here as a you know the curator of a, of a wildlife park and you get home and you you've got a collection yourself at home i do i mean i've had a collection for well most of my zookeeping career and since i've got the job here as a curator it's more desk bound it's more administrative um so less hands-on which i do miss so my my personal or private collection has grown considerably because yeah i, I actually enjoy that part of working with animals so yeah, I mean, it's not a job. It's it's a lifestyle. That's just that simple. Yeah, very cool. Mm. The hobby's a bit different to the work life, though. It is. I mean, obviously, your private hobby, you have control. Mm. Okay, so obviously within the zoo industry, I mean, you'll find we're all zookeepers. I mean, everybody in this room is very passionate. Sometimes the institution that you're working for has a certain idea and you may not agree with it but you know when you're doing it privately you can have whatever species you want and you're responsible for them so it is a little bit different but there are a lot of similarities as well so you you specialize a lot in the dwarf monitors at the moment dwarf to medium yeah Yeah. i stay away from the big boys only because i simply don't have the space the space and i think if you're going to keep them they need to be set up properly they do roam um i've kind of 
yeah, just kept it to the small and medium. Yeah. yeah, which you can come to work and see the big boys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, you know, I think you should have a an enclosure that actually complements the animal and allows it to do everything that it would normally do in the wild. Yeah. What made you get into the, the monitors? Because you've been very successful with the the dwarf monitors that you do work with. Um, I've always, as I said, I've always, always been very passionate um, and mainly about reptiles. I was probably like you guys, you know, as a kid going out looking for them. And uh, I remember Steve Swanson's book, Lizards of Australia. That was my first first book as a kid. I think I was about 10. And I opened that up and saw the photos and just saw all these animals that weren't in my backyard but were in Australia. And uh, that's where the passion really came from. It's like, oh, there's all these different types of monitors. And I don't know, there's just something about them. And, I mean, I've kept most stuff. But and probably like most people, when you first get into the hobby and start keeping stuff privately, you keep a lot of different types of things. Yeah. The setups can be different, you know. And I guess a classic is, you know, you could be a good reptile keeper, but that doesn't make you a good amphibian keeper because some of the principles are the same, but the setups and all that are completely yeah. different. I find that as time's gone by, having kept a wide variety of species in the past, you know, this is what I want to concentrate on. Yeah. And I still keep the odd thing that I like, such as green tree pythons. You know. Yeah. But uh, it's mainly just the monitors. Yeah, you've got some stunners, that's for sure. Oh, there's, Australia's the home of varanids. Yeah, there are some really cool stuff out there. Yeah. yeah. What have we got, about 30 species of goannas or monitor lizards in Australia? Australia? Yeah, it's around about that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you do really well because not only do you keep them, but you successfully breed a lot of these animals. Yeah, which some of them is quite hard to do. Yeah. Some species are a little bit harder than others. I guess my zoo industry background, especially working with captive breeding programs, that's where I guess I've taken a lot of the stuff that I've learnt and developed over that and apply it to, to, the, uh, to the monitors. I mean, you can get a pair of monitors and, and you can breed them, but just because you get a pair doesn't guarantee you're going to do that. You actually do have to put some time and effort into it. If you don't do that, well, it's going to be spasmodic. You do need to know your animals you do need to know what they're doing what's required and all that kind of stuff and it's not as easy as what a lot of people think it is there's a lot of things such as how you set them up which can be quite expensive so it's a passion so yeah yes and i don't know anybody that breeds for the money no no no, no. <laughs> well no we breed to lose money apparently yeah. <laughs> well you pretty much do when you throw in the electricity costs and also the amount of food that you need to put in you know it's always nice if your hobby can support itself mm. um it's even great if it can you know make a bit of money for you but none of us are in that for that reason it's the enjoyment of keeping something and keeping it well and and breeding and learning from that and then passing on that knowledge to other people how many monitors do you have at the moment i mean he's counting <laughs> i can hear him <laughs> probably probably 50 plus that includes hatchlings and that as well. So, well, to a reptile person, we don't blink an eye, but there are people that would be like, "Why do you have fifty goannas in your house?" Yeah, yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's a good amount of, of goannas. If they are dwarf goannas, they are dwarfs. Cool. Yeah, so it's been yeah. a while since I've been to yours, and mm. so you've grown a lot since I was there. Yes, yes. There's a there's a few species that I've been wanting to get for quite some time that um, are becoming more available Um, you know things such as the Pilbara rock monitors the Kimberley rock monitors there's there's some very good private keepers out there that are are now breeding them on a regular basis not in large numbers but they're becoming more available Um, for those that are in the industry know that green tree monitors are are out there and there's a couple of guys that have been successful in breeding them this year so fingers crossed stunning monitor hopefully they become available to to people that um, have that passion and want to keep them is that a species you may move into in the future definitely definitely if I ever get the opportunity (laughs) Um, I mean, I was lucky. I I got to work with them at London Zoo. Never bred them there, but um, got to work with them. So it's one of these things that um, it's like the green tree pythons. I remember seeing them back in the early 90s at Bradill's Reptile Park. 
Uh, we took yeah. some animals over there from Hillsville and he brought them out and it's like, wow, it's 20 years later and I'm finally able to keep them, you know, myself. So And super excited about keeping oh, them as well, which is yeah, great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, they, they've never lost, you know, that wow factor when you first saw them. It's still that wow factor when you go home and it's like, wow. They had yeah, it. I've so, kept them for years, yeah. bred them. And, yeah, there's always a wow factor when you go to the greens. Yeah. And things like when you breed them and you get a, a, a baby green tree python or yellow tree python at mm-hmm. that point and you put it into an enclosure and it's and it goes up and perches straight away in a perfect... Mm. You just think, how the hell do you know that? Yeah. It's just... They're, they're amazing animals. I've got love them. two young ones that I've <coughs> bred uh, from this season and, uh, you know, that's the first time that I've, I've, I've bred them. I looked after them at Adelaide Zoo and we had a couple of clutches, but... It's a species that eluded me. Those clutches, the eggs weren't viable. They never went mm. full term for, for various reasons. So I don't like to be beaten. So, I will, you know, if I have a species, <laughs> and it's like, no, I want to I crack, crack that. I want to breed them. So that was, you know, not only did I like the green tree pythons, they were such a stunning, stunning species, but um, they, I hadn't hadn't been able to breed them. Now I can say, well, I've done that, but you still want to... You know, I haven't learned everything yet, mm. so... Yeah, no, and, and that's the whole thing. Like with me, you're well into your monitors. I've always been well into my pythons, but we're all still learning now, 20, 30 years on. And not only by talking to other keepers, both in the industry and also privately, new, you know, reading literature that comes out. There's all... I mean, the, the hobby actually over the last 20 years has gone, gone ahead in leaps and bounds. Mm. I remember 20 years ago, a friend of mine, when we were in Victoria... VHS meetings they were quite quite big when they it reformed in the 90s 200 people turn up there and he did a talk on keeping and breeding children's pythons and he made a comment oh you can put them in a rubbish bin and breed them and you should have heard what because they were hardly being bred back then but the guy's right yeah you know I mean if you lived in the the type of environment where they are found you could keep them in a rubbish bin yeah. and they would breed yeah. you know yeah it's sometimes you need to put triggers in there other times you don't mm. so yeah yeah and things like green trees would be a minimal trigger really because they're they're pretty much near the equator their yeah. temperatures don't really fluctuate that much no. wet and dry season maybe yeah but- uh, yeah. Temperature drops um, at night time, and uh, you know there's some very good books out there about mm. keeping and keeping and breeding green tree pythons now. So, you know, I'd certainly encourage anybody that was getting into the hobby or was already in the hobby is get some good books and all that. You you, you will learn stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially with the green tree pythons, mm. there are a couple of amazing books out there. There are. Because back in the day, it always used to be like in their last week of incubation, you had to drop the temperature to get them to hatch and things like that. Whereas now. Well, I haven't done that for probably the last five years. Mm. They stay at the same temperature, so you can get away with it. And you know, like I said, yeah, we're always learning about those sorts of learning things. Learning and experimenting. I mean, mm. incubation, you just brought that up. I mean, you know, back in the early days, the Mickey Light Perlite was pretty much... Now you're talking sim containers, no substrate. Yeah, know, see, I'm or, still I'm yeah. still for Mickey Light and Perlite. Yeah, well, um, I've switched the no substrate method for, oh, for yeah. the monitors. Um, having said that, there are still some species which are a bit problematic uh, mm. Scalaris for example I have no problems getting eggs out there but I'm having problems getting those eggs to go full term mm. so I'm talking to other people that are having the same problems with them and uh, I'm certainly going to try a few th- new things this year mm. I probably will try perlite maybe yeah. a dry mix but yeah I mean I still use vermiculite for pythons yeah I mean it's, it's, it's the same old reason like we, we used to do it like that because it always worked mm-hmm. um, and I've never differed from it and I never really completely understood why I did it like that. I just wasn't going to change my method. It's only probably within the last 
I think it was about five or six years that I was speaking to another keeper about it, a, a very knowledgeable keeper, Matt Bonnet. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I, I was sort of saying to him, that's how I incubate. And I have a lot of vermiculite, two mm-hmm. thirds full of vermiculite, and then lay them into perlite. And, and it always works. And I don't understand why these people are going over water and things like that because, and really it was having that conversation with him that, that he pointed out and it became obvious that the reason I'm doing that is because if I had a walk-in incubator, I would go over water all day long. It would mm-hmm. be so much easier. Mm-hmm. But because I've got a, a cabinet, you know, fridge-type incubator, it's the fact that I've got loads of vermiculite and loads of perlite. So when I take that container out of that incubator and put it into a room that's going to be 5 to 10, if not more, degrees lower, um, I can take the lid off of that incubating container and they're not going to instantly lose that heat. They're not going to go from 30.5, 31 degrees down to... 22 degrees instantly mm. and shock those little babies in that egg that are struggling to get through incubation yep. so and then yeah it all became like yeah that's why I do it and I won't change now yep. but because that's always got a radiant heat that's going through those eggs even if I take that out and open it into a room that's 10 degrees it's not going to shock those eggs because the radiant heat of 30.5 is still all in that vermiculite and it's mm. keeping them warm it's, I mean yeah. if it works for you yeah, no, it's not broken mm. you know yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, don't fix it um, it's when you're doing something and you're not getting the results or as mm. good as results mm. then you start asking you start looking you start you know rethinking how you're doing things mm. you know there are some keepers I remember a clutch of carpet pythons again probably about 20 years ago I probably didn't have them in a large enough container and there was a CO2 build-up. I, I lost the entire clutch. I mean, this is going way, way back. Yeah. Um, and I spoke to a keeper, Simon Cortland, very, very experienced keeper, and, yeah, told him the situation. He pretty much said, yeah, that's what's happened. Yeah. Um, you know, CO2 is heavier than air, so it just stayed on the bottom. It just built up. So, you know, people... Eat. I even do it with the monitors. It's like, you know, depending on the size of your container, how many eggs, the size of the eggs, all this kind of things, it's very important to actually get that airflow through. Yeah, yeah. Um, otherwise, you will end up with some problems. Yeah. yeah. Always with my Python eggs, the last two weeks of incubation, I give them... Like, I lift the lid off every day for yep. the last two weeks. Yeah. Yep. And look, with some of the monitor eggs, you know, they really take on the moisture and they're, they're mm. quite turgid. So there are certainly keepers that are um, venting, if is the word they tend to use, yep. and... Um, trying to get those eggs to actually collapse a little bit and mm. uh, start denting, which they should do before they um, yeah. start hatching out. Because uh, the theory is, you know, monitors are struggling to actually break out of that break egg out. and drowning. I'm, I don't assist with, with the monitors. I'm a firm believer if it's not strong enough to hatch out of the egg on its own, it's, it's not meant to be. Mm. I've certainly assisted snakes in the past and I look back on it now and they often were very slow to start feeding and things like that. So... Mm. I mean, incubation is just one aspect of keeping reptiles and uh, it's one that we still need to learn. But there are some good books out there, again, on on incubating reptiles. And I think temperature comes into it as far as sex determination. I think we've still got a lot to learn as far as that goes. We know it works for some species. I wouldn't be surprised if serpents and also your lizards also are probably a bit more affected. Yeah, I find incubation... very interesting subject mm. when you when you look at incubating monitor eggs versus python eggs there's a lot longer incubation time for monitor eggs uh, for the for the for the biggest for bigger the bigger species uh, okay. yeah certainly for the smaller ones still generally longer than what um you know your, your pythons are your, your pythons are around about that 50 odd days yeah, yeah. I, I don't think the f- like female monitors don't put as much into the eggs inside them do they so when i think when a monitor has eggs 
the neonets are not anywhere near as far along gone as what a python yeah if you're going to count of the eggs and you don't see anything you know to start mm, off with and doesn't uh, really yeah so i mean some of your smaller monitor eggs depending on the temperature that you're you're incubating them 80 would be you know somewhere in the 80s depending on the temperature for some of the really smaller species uh bush eye for example around about that 80 odd mark and it can go up to you know 170 you know for some species or more it's a long time people that breed lace monitors they're waiting a long time for those eggs oh, yeah. to actually go through and i guess the longer the time period too the more there is a possibility that something could go wrong so that's 80 for like a small monitor whereas your biggest pythons that's about maximum 80 mm. yeah 85 yeah. okay days. it depends on temperature it's amazing uh, isn't it yeah. yeah i mean i'm i'm toying around i honestly believe that with incubation you should have a nighttime and a daytime temperature because when you think about it other than you know probably pythons that can actually can control the, the yeah. temperature and you know species that lay in termite mounds the environment i mean it depends on how far the exhalate underground and all that sort of stuff there would be a variance so i'm sort of toying and playing around with that at the moment do they come out stronger i mean is it going to affect the length of their incubation and things like that so yeah i mean it's important for all keepers um that they keep good records you, can, you can't go overboard in in what you record and someday you'll be able to go back and refer to it or you can pass that on to somebody else so there's still a lot to learn out there i've and got some funny records that i kept probably 20 years ago where i was writing down how i was going to breed my pythons this year and <laughs> you look at back at things like that and think really steve <laughs> you were oh. going to do that <laughs> look i mean i have for the last few years i mean looking at you know the successful rate of you know the monitors that i've been breeding and i've been lucky it's it's, it's been going up um the success rate and the number of eggs by uh, the number that hatch out but there's still a way to go so there's still a lot to learn and there's still a lot to to, to refine but um for me it's heading in the right direction i think you've kind of answered my next question which was going to be what advice would you give to somebody that wants to get into breeding monitors or even reptiles in general which i could even direct that question to you steve yeah, um, sure. but i think you've um you've covered a lot of that like get into some good books networking understand that you know monitors they're a little bit different than some of the other species like none of my cages are actually hooked up to a thermostat so it's important to provide good hotspot and a hotspot that also covers the snout vent length okay if it's any smaller than that then you're going to find that monitor will actually spend longer under there um, and risk thermal burns because its whole body's not heating up you want a hot spot that's actually large enough for the size of the monitor that you're keeping and the other thing is get that heat up you know that's why i don't have thermostats you're looking at 40 to 50 degrees hot spot i mean you could put your hand on there and you think whoa it's a bit hot too hot but this monitor will bask on that, okay? The important thing is providing they can get away from it. So they can, they have the ability within their enclosure to actually get away and cool down because that's, that's how they operate in the wild. So, yeah, you've got to keep the heat up to them and also to make them feel comfortable in their enclosures. I'm not sure. Have you heard of a guy called Reitz, American? Can't say I have. Okay, no. he, was, he was the one that really cracked monitors, in, in captive breeding mm. and Australian monitors, okay? Which is quite sad in a way that it was somebody in another country that actually cracked breeding breeding monitors as far as I'm concerned. So anybody's in the monitors looking up because I think he's still going. The way he sort of looked outside the square and then applied it to monitors, yeah, his results were just fantastic. So again, keep the heat up to him 
and also within that enclosure just look at the type of things that you invite them so you want a nice hot spot that's out in the open and then you have areas where it gets hot and they can still sit under there and hide and same with cool spots light cool spot and a dark cool spot so that monitor's got a chance of moving around it'll feel much more comfortable keep the food up to them okay if you've got your setup right you won't get a fat monitor you can feed them as much as you like and they will just burn it off they'll, they'll still stay that long and lean but if you've got a monitor that's starting to get quite chunky your hot spot's not it's, it's not right it's you know they shouldn't and then you've got to look about moisture and uh, if you want to breed that plays a part in it as well is there any common mistakes that you see in untruths that are told that you'd like to stamp out here and forever <laughs> <laughs> untruths the hot um, spot was certainly a good one yeah yeah, look, um, providing they can get away from the heat and providing that hot spot is a hot spot and it is the size of the snout bent. And that's, again, when, you, when you've got something like a, a parenti, can you yeah. imagine an adult parenti, can you imagine the, type, the size of the hot spot? That's a big bulb. It is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a series of bulbs, you know. You know, a snake's able to coil up. Even a big snake can coil up into a relatively small spot, so you only have to heat that, that area. That's probably the, the, the one that... And it, Making sure your hotspot is protected because, yeah, if you stay there too long, they will get thermal burns. If you have it on a thermostat, you'll see the same with snakes. If they can get access to that bulb when it's off and then all of a sudden, you know, they cool down and it heats up, bang, you know, you've just got this massive heat so you get burns again. So get your heating right. Uh, make sure your enclosure is escape-proof, all right? They're just as bad as snakes, especially young ones, some more so than others. They will find ways to get out. Um, yeah, I think the small ones are, are terrible for escaping. And then how do you find it? You, basically, <laughs> basically, you've got to make sure your room is sealed. Okay, so if something gets out, it's, it's, it's contained inside it's that room. going to be in that room, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, it's happened to everybody. I, I remember my, my first... Uh, I, I use URS cages, um, the plastic ones, and I, I use them for a number of reasons. Basically, they're not going to rot on you. Um... And they are stackable, which has its pros and its, its cons. But I remember getting, when I got first got Bushai, and they were, they were only young ones, and um, you know, I was really, really excited, and I put them in there, and the next day I was looking for them. I couldn't find them. I, I stripped this enclosure out. I could not find them. Little buggers were sitting up the top. Up on the ledge. On the ledge. <laughs> okay. And I only saw it just one because all of a sudden the tail came down. It's like, oh, they haven't got out. But, yeah, they, they, I've known people that, have, have, and it's happened to me too. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, gone for a walk. Yeah, I've had that with snakes in those similar enclosures mm. where you've got the lip from the glass, top of the glass to the roof of the cage. Yep. That snakes have been just up in there, yep. and you've got it's gone. And I've searched the cage, not found it. Searched rooms, not found it. And then all of a sudden, yep. dropped their tail. But the worst one was when a snake was under the water bowl, and I didn't look, and I turned the room upside down. And the water bowl was a hollow-bottomed water yeah. bowl, and it had somehow got, got under, under that. And, yeah, I didn't notice that for hours. And me and my wife were out in the garden looking for the snake at that point. Mm. And then I opened the drawer, and I just saw its tail out of the thing. I went, oh, shit. Yeah, look, it's happened, it's happened to all of us. Um, so, yes, make sure your enclosure is escape-proof because um, they will find a way out. Also, if you have front opening, well, they're quick. You know, especially if they've heated up um, and they're running around, just just be aware. If, if they're a, a little bit flighty, then that opportunity to shoot past you is there. So, yeah, just be aware of that. Have good reflexes. Most red, top, <laughs> most red top keepers do have very good reflexes, so that does help. As far as myths go, 
I don't know. I mean, none come to mind. No. Uh, well, it does cost a lot to heat them, and it does cost a lot to, lot to feed them as well because during the breeding season, I mean, I'm, I'm feeding every two days. Being a lot of the smaller models, a lot of that is inverts. You can imagine if you're not breeding them yourselves, it's, it's costing quite Costly. a lot. Yeah. yeah. But that's what you need to do if you're mm. going to keep, keep them and breed them. There are some species that are better for beginners than others. So I would start off with the small ones and hone your skills there because pretty much most of them are very similar in the way that you set them up. So, for example, your Ridgetail Monitors, Varanus acanthiris, uh, your Gillamai, or, or even your Tristus. Um, your Tristus a little bit more quicker and it can be a little bit flightier, but um, if you hone your skills with those, then you'll be right for some of the other species such as the aquatics or some of the more expensive ones. I don't know if you've had any involvement into looking into the venomous side to goannas? Yeah, venom doc or something. Yeah. Yeah. I was at Hillsville when he first started looking at that. So that's going back well over 10 years now because Hillsville actually got some of these monitors that he'd been actually doing some of that stuff. I'm, I'm sure they are. I don't think they're up there with it. Have he- you been bitten by any of them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you, does it feel different? No. 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 And look, I mean, I remember getting nailed by a uh, lace monitor once and I was up a tree. It was a, it was a rescue type thing and I just misjudged the hand and, um, yeah, got the finger and uh, managed to get it out before there was an absolute crunch. And they bleed a lot, mm. but no effects of venom or anything like that. So it's a lot different than a Komodo dragon. Yeah. <laughs> Not only in size and also all that, you know, other stuff that they've got in their mouths as mm. well. Yeah, you don't want to get... I mean, I've known people that have been bitten by parentes and it's not so much the venom per se, it's the nerve damage and all that that's being yeah. done. So in the microsurgery that's required, I'd be more worried about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, something that I, I want to actually look into, like that side of it and see what papers are out there. Cause I did, didn't know if you already knew. It's mm. generally accepted now that they they do they have venom. Are. It's certainly not up there with your lapids. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, things that you've done in the past even? I've been very fortunate in my career to work alongside some very good keepers. I thoroughly enjoy it. I haven't turned to the dark side. I'll always leave the industry if that ever happens. And I've, I've seen it happen. You know. So what's the dark side? Oh, <laughs> you know, some keepers get a little bit disillusioned or lose the passion for what for it could be any any reason yeah gotcha and yeah. it's 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 the same I guess with any job really but um, it's I, I consider it a lifestyle I mean no zookeeper ever did this for money <laughs> it's not a high paid job <laughs> but you're right it's one of those jobs that could be a massive dream in your mind that just turns out in the end to actually be cleaning up after animals constantly and, and it probably that's what could. a lot of people don't realise mm. um, that you know probably 70 80% being a zookeeper is feeding and cleaning yeah. you know and then you and you get that other thing where you're actually interacting with the animals I mean the zoo industry's evolved and it's changed over the time that I've been been in there I mean you a lot of your enclosures now um, are more naturalistic you know gone are the cement jungles with the bars and that's a good thing technology is there now you can use that like the use of uh, video cameras and when the keeper's not there they can still see what's going on yeah. so there's there's none of this, oh, I think they're doing that because of this. You can actually visually see what they're doing. And I certainly use cameras for captive breeding programs to help identify what was going on with both helmeted hyenas and black hip liners. So I would even use them at home. You know, if, I mean, I keep very close eye on, on my captive collection and, uh, you know, I don't like them doing anything that I don't know about. And it's interesting because, you know, certainly when it comes to egg laying and all that, some of those females, you know, they'll do it. They're pretty good at concealing what they've done, you know. So you've really got to be switched on. And 
I would certainly use cameras at times on my monitor collection if I know she's, you know, a female's grab it, um, and I know roughly when they're going to lay. Um, you know, it's not. It, they don't tend to do test holes per se, like some of the other species. They just send right time to lay. Well, some of them do a little bit of test holes. So technology's there as well. Is that the kind of setup you can just turn your phone on and have a look live, or is it more you got to go back and take out a USB card or a Again, SD well, card rather? Probably do both. You could do both. I mean, technology just seems to be going ahead in leaps and bounds. That, um, I mean, one of my keepers has got some app on her phone that she can actually see what her dog's doing at home. <laughs> You know, mm. and she can even give it a treat. That's because dogs are very untrustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> she can she can even give the dog a treat. You know. Oh wow! Oh really? <laughs> so yeah, the, the, this, this app is. I think it's an app. Um, it's something I said. I'm not technical. Look at Byron getting all technical. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not technical. <laughs> you know. I mean, you guys are going to show me how to do something later. But um, yeah, she can actually see. Yeah, and you, she pushes this little button, and you can see this little treat comes out, and the dog knows, and it goes to it. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, can you imagine that kind of technology could be used in the zoo industry as far as enrichment and things like that? So, yeah, with naturalistic enclosures, it does make it, at times, depending on the species, hard to see the species. So I know people get disappointed when they're wanting to see something and it's, they can't see it. So When I came to yours that time, like, um, yeah, I thought... Lovely. Some of the monitors are amazing, but the way you've got your enclosures set up, you're sort of like, oh, you don't get to see them that often. No. But and, and that was my um, ignorant view of it, like, oh, but you don't get to see anything. But then when you really think about it, well, that's the best way to keep them because they're going to thrive if they can hide away from you, and they've got all these different levels to go in. And yeah, I mean, when you for somebody who just rocks up and, and has a look at the collection, they might be lucky to see one or two species, mm. you know, that are out and about. It depends. I mean, if I'm going in there feeding, there, you know, there's quite a few that'll be at the at the window. At the window, yeah. Because they'll see what's see what I'm doing over here. And they'll know that. Oh, you know. Um, and it depends how long you've had them and what have you. Uh, you know, I, I see I see a lot. Yeah. Okay. Mm. But, but for a visit, yeah. for a visitor that yeah. sort of somebody you know rocks up, you show them how you set them up and all that. Are they guaranteed? Oh, oh we want to see see that one it's like there's no guarantee without yeah. pulling that enclosure apart um, getting back to enclosures and, and things I'm a big fan of the KISS philosophy so I keep my enclosures very very simple the more you add to them the harder it is to keep them clean and I know that another thing that I'm kind of looking at I know other people are doing it now is having those bio type um, mm. enclosures that are very low maintenance as far as cleaning and all that so that's certainly something that I want to look into. But you know, I keep my enclosures very simple, but they still provide the animals with what they need. Mm. So yeah, that's something I want to look into. I know nothing about it, and in my, I, I put my mind at work with it a little bit, and I sort of think with arboreal stuff, it sounds really good. Terrestrial stuff, I'm just sort of like they're, they're still laying in crap and that. I need to learn a lot about it because even the stuff that's eating the the animal skins and the, they're still pooing in the bottom. I don't know. I don't you're know. starting to see it crop up in some of the, you know, the Facebook sites and all mm, that sort of stuff. It looks there. amazing. I was going to say the enclosures look incredible. Yeah. And you're just getting a, a short glimpse of it. Is it like that all the time? Mm. Um, Apparently it is. You'd know Nick Yeah, Hardy. yeah he's, mm. he's got two years now where he hasn't cleaned an enclosure that he's got. See, I think that's amazing and great, but it's also my mind going, 
There's, there's still should, shit in there. We should go. Well, I think the, the <laughs> we should ask me because you Yeah, but they're it, still shitting. They're still shitting. I think that becomes organic matter. Sorry about the, the. I don't know. Shitting. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Word being used a lot, but yeah, I don't know. We yeah. should go have a look. Yeah, it you should. would be really um, interesting because he he will know a lot about it. I reckon so. It would be. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly interested. In it. Again, mm. that's another aspect of the hobby that's just gone to another level. Again, we're constantly learning. We're constantly trying new things. How well that works with monitors, I mean, the principle should be the same, but I'm like you, Steve. It's like I've never actually tried it. I mm. don't understand the full, you know, mechanics of it. I would love the idea. Of yeah, it. I think it's fantastic. Mm. I mean, you know, certainly for amphibian species, to get an, uh, an enclosure environmentally provides those, you know, those, those species with them behaving in a more naturalistic way, being more probably more active as well and I only say that because you know when I was working at London and then in Adelaide poison arrow frogs the dendrobites yeah that they don't all for a start just just great mm. mate thank you so much for thank coming you. on yeah. oh that's okay we've been wanting to do this for ages so it was great to it's nail just, you down yeah it's just trying to yeah work out a time <laughs> yeah that's right but at some point we'll come back up to interview you about this park and you mm-hmm. can show us around and we'll do some stuff definitely with yourself yep. and Chris and uh, some of your keepers definitely so that's yeah. It's going to yes. be awesome as well. That'd yeah, be great. Brilliant. Thanks again, Byron. Thank no you. problem. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Bye.